If you were not here uh, on the 23rd, we gave uh, Stonebridge a gift. And one of the things we discussed when we started the church was we want to uh, help one another grow in the area of prayer. Um, it's, it seems systemic among Christians when you pray over lunch, when you maybe pray with your kids at night, when you pray uh, maybe with friends. We tend to say the same 15 things we always say. And for Cindy and me on our journey as a couple and just learning about a prayer life and devotional life, one of the things that's been an extraordinary tool is this handbook to prayer by Ken Boa. And we purchased about 220 copies. There's a, a few remaining back there. If you were not here on the 23rd, we want to give this to you as a gift. And my uh, encouragement was to write the date, you know, December 23rd, 2018, whatever it is today, January 6, 19, and do this for 90 days. It is a, a cycle of 30 days prayer, so it's three months. And it's a very simple book. Um, I was sharing this morning, we meet at 8.45 over here, a group of us to pray for, for you, for the service, for the day. And so this is day six, month one. And I was sharing with them when I, when I read it earlier this morning, I just got stalled at the first section. But it, it, it has a paint by numbers approach. It's adoration is the first one. And all Ken does is, uh, uh, amalgamate some scripture and then he gives you some bullet points to pray along with that passage. So it gets you out of the rote routine. Uh, didn't Jesus say, say something about meaningless repetition? That always, that always gives me heartburn when I read that. My prayers kind of can be meaningless repetition. I say the same thing all the time. And one hope I have for our church is that we pray more maturely. We grow in our prayer life. Not guilt, not shame, not oughta and shoulda and coulda, but we grow. And this passage was one that just caught me. Oh, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments and unfathomable your ways. And I still remember the first time I was learning Greek, unfathomable was the word bathos. Remember the old television programs with the bathosphere? They put that round thing on a cable and drop it in the ocean. You see things you couldn't see otherwise. Unsearchable, your judgments. Unfathomable, your ways. Uh, who has been your counselor? Who was first given to you? Uh, by the way, Boa does a bit of a paraphrase in some of this to make it easier. Um, what should you repay him? Uh, for from you and through you and to you all things be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he says, pause and express your thoughts of praise and worship. So I call it paint by number prayer. It will, it will teach you to pray. And then you go to confession and he has a passage, same type of thing. And then he goes to renewal, petition, intercession, affirmation, thanksgiving, and then a closing prayer. And I, because um, I like to color my books, I write notes in them. You know, I take notes as I'm praying through it, but it's, it's not the only way to pray by any uh, means, but it is a very helpful tool. And as you take one, I want you to do it for 90 days and see if it will help you get into it. You can do it in five minutes. You can do it 20. And I'm not going to ask you how long you spent. I just want you to get into a new habit, as Wayne underscored, to do something different. I don't know many believers, except perhaps um, uh, silver-haired widows who uh, know how to pray unlike the rest of us. I think you have to get to that chapter before you really learn how to pray. I, I believe that to some measure. But maybe we can get a jump start on it. <laughs> maybe we can learn to pray. So take one. And because we have some extras, if you're a couple that doesn't play well together, you can take a second one. If husbands and wife, you want to have your own book, we've got the box back there. 
Uh, it's, got, it's unmarked back there, but you'll see, and they're wrapped in plastic. You're welcome to take one. Take your Bible and open to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. This little book will land another three messages on, um, and then Jay Condor will, will teach. Uh, Cindy and I will be out of town for one weekend. I'm looking forward, Jay and uh, Christy. You've heard Christy, uh, if you've been here, lead the kids' ministry um, on Sunday mornings. Jay has got quite a theological uh, uh, breadth and depth, Cindy and uh, and Christy and Jay and I led a small group of young couples for two years together. And whenever he led the group, I was like, I'm chopped liver. I don't need to be here. This guy is great. And so you're going to enjoy him opening the word. And then we'll, we'll get into a new, a new study. But for now, we want to, next three weeks, wind down the book of, little book of Second Peter. Now, what, what we've got in this chapter, it's a bit unusual as we begin because he's talking about the end times. And end times are like spiritual gifts or uh, you know, these, these trends that come and go. And there was a time when I was young in the 70s when you had a prophecy conference and you couldn't get in the door. Or you know, a, a gifts conf conference, you couldn't get in the door. And now people don't care about prophecy. So one of them, you know, you know my phrase, in context, understanding this passage in context before we apply it is important because what he's fending off is false teaching and denial about the end times. Now that may not seem real exciting to you. It may not seem life-changing. I'm going to go out of here having a better comprehension. But I think the passage, as we unfold it, it's very easy to apply those parallels to where we are with false teaching that's all around us. Now the connection between chapter 2, which is a pretty uh, unhappy chapter to read about all the things, in fact, we want to look at it briefly, that the false teachers are doing, and it, it's egregious if we just skim part of chapter 2, um, picking up, let's say, in, um, in verse 8. For what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day by day by their lawless deeds. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment to the day of judgment. Especially those who indulge in the flesh, its corrupt desires, despising authority, daring, self-willed, verse 12, these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct, uh, uh, they'll be destroyed. I mean, it's a hard chapter to read. Verse 18, speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, sensuality, who barely escape from the, those who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves to corruption, and on it goes. So it's, it's, a, it's a hard chapter to understand what Peter's doing. So I came across this, I thought it was pretty interesting. It's a way of explaining it. Let me read part of this to you. Uh, they have not been dismissed from divine restraint to go their own way, or subject only to the laws of nature. God still has his controlling hand on the world. As being holy, God will not let wickedness go unpunished. God is presently preserving our world against such a day. So what we're going to learn from this connection, these two chapters are, this is what the false teachers are teaching, and now he's going to encourage them, this is how you stand. This is how you don't let the world teach you theology, to put it in simple layman terms. Paraphrasing Hebert, those who mock skeptics, 
who boasts in a licentious dismissing the, the moral restraints of the gospel has its root in a personal rejection of the authority of Jesus Christ. Um, Dr. Tom Constable, and by the way, UBSF Precept uh, Community Bible Studies, when you, when you can use other sources, when you can cheat, um, Dr. Tom Constable has notes on the entire Bible that are free and easy to download as a PDF or a Word document. And they're basically, y'all know what a study Bible is, like Ryrie's study Bible, MacArthur's study Bible. Think of it as Tom Constable's study notes as a study Bible. It's a massive document, but you can download each book of the Bible. And he does a great job of what's called synthesis. It's easy to look at a passage and look up words and meanings and chase it down and do what I call exposition, exegesis. It's a lot different to do synthesis. What's the whole story about? That's the art, really, of understanding the Bible. And so what Constable does is he has a paragraph about the book, and then he has an outline, and it's an annotated outline. So he'll have sections in there of you know, four or five comments that other commentators, he's gleaned together. When there's a problem passage, he'll show you the different options for that passage in just a very even-handed way, Dr. Com Constable. And so he tells, when he writes about this, he says, Second uh, Peter is a Bologna sandwich. Chapter 1 and 3 are the bread, the pastoral exhortation, and the middle chapter 2 is the Bologna, namely, baloney of the false teachers. In chapter 3, Peter refutes the mocker's denial of Christ's return, then he presents the correct view of Christ's return, and then he concludes with exhortations for the reader in view of the dark and dangerous days facing them. That's what we're going to look at three weeks. We're going to look today, verses 1 to 7, the dispute of Christ's return next week, the conclusion of the timely return, and then finally, the dark and dangerous days. So again, I know I'm prattling a bit here. They're being faced with a denial of Christ's return. We probably don't worry about this. We don't think about this very often, but it can apply to a lot of different things. What people are denying today, what, how they're changing theology, what they're selling, what they're you know, taking out of the scripture, so, so as it were. Um, so this will apply pretty readily. So let's read together. Would you read from the screen with me? Chapter three, the first two verses. Read aloud. Read well, this is the word of God. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Now, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Number one, remember, this is God's word. Remember, this is God's word. This is the baseline when you hear, whether it's a negation of the parousa, the second coming of Christ, or some other theology. Remember, this is God's word. Don't rush over the word beloved, the adjective in verse 1. Now, this now, beloved. He's going to use it four times in the letter. This is the first of the four. It's an endearing term. This is the elder, statesman, apostle, shepherd. Remember his story? When he rejects Christ and the primacy of Peter, because when you go to Israel, we'll take you to what's known as the church of Peter's primacy. And that's the spot, we don't know for sure, I give it a C, but it's a spot where you sit on the Galilean seashore, and this is where Peter was restored three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The restoration. Shepherd, ten, shepherd. 
So Peter becomes the elder statesman shepherd of this church. And in these two letters, it's endearing that he writes, beloved. So the elder apostle statesman now becomes the pastor. I care what you believe. I care what Kool-Aid you're drinking. I care that you know the right information over against the false teaching of the day, which in that case was the denial of Christ's return. Four times in these two verses, we have this emphasis of remember, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken. He's underscoring it and restating it in a number of ways. Stir up is an unusual word here, and the phrase stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder just doesn't work in our English here, does it? It just doesn't work. So let's take it apart a little bit and see what Peter is saying. Uh, stirring up is used as a provocateur. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he uses the exact same language. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. It's the idea of waking someone up from sleep. We talked about this during the Joseph dream, get up. It's a different word, but it has the same uh, field of meaning. It's getting someone out of bed. Mark 4, 39, Jesus got up. That's the exact same word Peter's using here. It's just rendered got up. Jesus was stirred, you could say. When he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush and be still. And the disciples freaked out. In Luke 24, uh, 824 again the disciples woke him up the disciples stirred him up it's the same same phrase same exact word now the idea of sincere mind i want to stir up your sincere mind takes a little work um have y'all heard the phrase without wax some of you've been around a long time heard the phrase without wax the word sincere uh this is a little bit of an etymology not entomology entomology is the study of what Bugs, good. Okay, etymology is the study of word, root, meaning, and stem from, from Latin or Germanic languages or Semitic languages and how they, we've talked about English being the, the most complicated, incredibly difficult language to learn. You grew up in it, you don't know any differently, but if you speak other languages, you understand English is stinking complicated. Uh, so etymology is going back and figuring out where these word forms came from. Words have meaning only in the way they're used. We've had this discussion before. I won't go down my peanut illustration if you've heard me or any time you've heard the peanut illustration. Anyway, all that to say, only when it's used. Now, when we look at this word without wax, the etymology suggests when pottery, I meant to bring a, I meant to be a Christy Condor and have an object. Uh, a, a piece of pottery has cracks in it. If it's ornate, uh, you don't want the cracks to show, so you would fill it with wax. And then if you were going to paint it or put some kind of rubbing on it, they didn't kill them in those days. Uh, when you go to Israel, there's pottery all over the place. And it's a one to 2,000 year old shards. It's, it's the first century solo cup, I call it. It's just everywhere. And you just pick it up and take it home. It's free. It's a free piece of archaeology. Uh, they would fill it with wax. And if it was something ornate, all you had to do is hold it up to the sun or put it by something that generated heat and that wax melts. So if you made a beautiful uh, piece of clay and you maybe put some painting or some different alcohols on the outside, maybe you know, decorated it and you gave it to someone and the first time they put it, hot liquid in it, it leaked, uh, it wasn't sincere. So the phrase without wax 
carried over in early Latin. Now, etymologists, not entomologists, dispute this. They go, no, it's a misappropriation of the word history. And on, you know, scholars enjoy disproving things. Just understand that. Scholars live to be revisionists. That's how they're wired. So the idea of if it was filled with wax, it wasn't sincere. Without wax was sincere. Now, the word is also used in other ways. Um, and honey, how many of you like honeycomb in your honey? Two of you? My father would only buy honey with honeycomb in it. And when he made his toast, he liked to spread that wax with his honey, and that was part of the gig to him, you know, whatever wines you watch. Um, 100% pure honey doesn't have wax in it. It's sincere. The word can mean pure or unadulterated. Stirring up your unadulterated, your pure mind as a way of reminder. So my axiom, don't let the world teach you theology. Use your brain. Stirring up by way of a reminder, a sincere reminder, or without wax reminder. The apostles' concern is they use their brain. One of the distinctions between biblical Christianity and world religions is most world religions, you just accept what you're told and you don't debate it or dispute it. And if the, if the person says it, you better believe it or you're out the door and you know, you're, you're in trouble. A biblical Christianity would tell you, use the brain God gave you. Romans chapter 12, don't think as you ought to think. Think that's a sound judgment. Use the brain God gave you. Use it by God's word, God's spirit. This is why this helps me. We have to have a sincere approach to our biblical Christianity. The apostles' readers are reminded of two things. The first is, the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, Old Testament. Secondly, the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Now, this is important because Peter is giving equal weight to the Old Testament prophetic literature and the apostolic literature. He's saying the Old Testament is just as important and as reliable as the New if you were living in the first century and you were a Jew, even a, a let's just say a, a Jew in name only, you looked to Moses, not to James or, or Peter or Paul or Matthew or Mark or Luke. You didn't care one whit about them. You looked to Moses and the prophets. So the apostle Peter is saying, wait, understand this. Look at it again. The words of the prophets spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. Secondly, the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And I love the fact that he puts that plural pronoun in there, your, second person pronoun, because he's identifying with them and he's saying the apostolic teaching is important. If you went to a Bible college or a seminary or if you have spent time studying scripture, you've probably come across this phrase, the apostolic teaching of the cross. You ever heard that phrase? F.F. F. Bruce, uh, A.B. Bruce wrote a book years ago called The Apostolic Teaching of the Cross. People thought, why? That's a strange name. No, because the New Testament essentially is the corpus of literature that the apostles wrote. And what are they talking about? The cross of Christ, the sufficiency of the gospel of Christ. So this idea... Lord and Savior, oh, by the way, he's not just master, he's your Savior. And this is confirmed via through the apostles. So the way to the Old Testament is important. In recent months, some of you may be following these things in national media. Some you may not, you don't really need to. But in the Christian world, there's all sorts of, you know, 
interesting things that go on. And a nationally prominent uh, Bible teacher, actually I was in seminary with him, uh, was kind of quoted, maybe misquoted, where he was dismissing the Old Testament's efficacy and importance. And then, of course, a lot of other people in the national platform go after him for different reasons. And, you know, it's just what we do. We're Christians. Uh, <clears throat> so we fight about it in print and in social media. Um, what, what, I, what I will say is, um, if you take the Old Testament and say it's complete and fulfilled in the personal work of Christ, I say yes, but that did not abrogate it. There are 10 so-called commandments, the Decalogue in the Old Testament. You know that every one of them, except one, is explicitly or implicitly restated in the New Testament. So because they, we don't follow the Decalogue anymore doesn't mean they're not still in place. You know what the one that's not implicitly or explicitly reminded in the, in the New Testament? Come on. Sabbath, BSF, you know, Sabbath. Sabbath. Sabbath was not made for man. Man was made for Sabbath. Oh, all the way around. Sabbath was the day of rest, that you trust God and you say, I can take a day off. You know, you're more effective taking a day off than you are working seven days. It's a statement of faith. It's a statement of trust. So what was the illustration? Let the land fallow on the seventh year. Don't abuse yourself. Take a day off. You're more effective if you work one, take one day of rest. That doesn't mean you're just a couch potato watching college football. Uh, you do something else besides your normal work routine. That can be a form of rest. All for free. The apostle is saying both are God's word. The Old Testament prophetic literature as well as what the apostles. And in that time and audience, that was the revelation. Not that the Old Testament wasn't important. I mean, you're telling me this new stuff been written and been orally transferred in the gospels, that is as important as Moses? Yes, that's his point. Don't let the world teach you theology. Don't let people who discount this part of the Bible or others in this case, the, the coming of Christ, that Christ isn't going to return. And so, well, maybe Christ isn't going to return. Why would that be important? Because I can live like I want. I can do what I want. That's 2 Peter chapter 2. You can live immorally, sensually. You can create your own God, so forth and so on. Keep in mind the topic is Christ's return. James Moffat writes, men more frequently require to be reminded than informed. I like that. Men more frequently require to be reminded than informed. Yeah, yeah. We don't like when someone talks at us, do we? And if you had a teacher, I mean, I guess teachers today, I haven't been in the education system in a long time, but I doubt they talk at you anymore because dialogue is the god of the educational model today. It's dialogue about how we feel about this. God bless you. I want to know the answer to the question. I don't want to know about how I feel about the answer, but I'm an old guy. Men more frequently require to be reminded. You already know this. I would suspect everyone in this room, nothing I've said this morning is something you didn't already know. Well, maybe you didn't about without wax, but in the main, you knew this stuff. You knew it. That's why I joke about morning my morning new verses I read. I read them before. I've been this this book many, many times, but that one caught me this morning. And I stopped and paused and thought, goodness gracious, Michael, you're a dope. You forget this stuff all the time. That's why I write in the margins. Maybe I'll remember next time. 
I tell Bible teachers and young pastors all the time, you'll never be out of work. You're in the business of constant re-education. If you're in a Bible study, a leader, you will never be out of work. You're in the constant business of re-education. And biblical literacy is dropping. It's, it's perhaps at an all-time low in the United States right now. It's a great opportunity. Nobody's got shoes. Let's go sell them you know, Bomba socks. They need Bomba socks, right? Is that what they're called, Bomba socks? Pay 20 bucks for a pair of socks. Yahoo! Andrew McNabb adds, an effective antidote to false doctrine is to recall and dwell on the teaching already perceived. An effective antidote to false te- doctrine is to recall and dwell on the teaching already received. The single best corrective to false, doctor, to false teaching is sound doctrine. What was that benchmark you put in the ground? You trusted in Christ and Christ alone. How many of us, not even, well, show our hands. I doubted my salvation for five or six years after I walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, did all the right things. How many of you doubted your salvation? The rest of you are lying. <laughs> or you're embarrassed. I don't, am I really saved? I did something, Romans 7, I do what I don't want to do. Am I really saved? Who will deliver me from this nonsense? We doubted it. What do you do? You go back. The assurance of salvation is what Christ has done, not what you and I do. The assurance of salvation is in his word and his promise, not how faithful we are or measure ourselves against some other sinner for goodness sake. We all have these people in our life that we kind of look at as they're super saints. If I was as good a Christian as them, let me tell you, their heart's just as corrupt as yours. The ground at Calvary is level, men and women. It is level. If, 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 if someone was better, then we'd been told to follow the better people. I love Paul when twice he says in his letters, I believe, uh, follow my example. I'm a human being too, but I'm trying to do this. This is the way to live, right? Well, chapter 3, verse 3, the second part of this. First, remember God's word. Secondly, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? So the dispute was the, the second coming of Christ, the parousal. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, referring to the Old Testament patriarchs who died, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Number one, remember, this is God's word. Number two, remember, mockers are going to come. Peter's reminder warning is to calm the coming waters. Don't be surprised when these things happen. Skepticism, scoffing, naysayers are nothing new. When a person of contempt or ridicule of what you believe, uh, don't be surprised. And that's where we're, we're not perhaps attacked because we don't believe in the second coming of Christ, but in general terms, you're a narrow, bigoted, uh, in my case, an angry old white guy because you believe that Jesus Christ lived, died, was buried, came back from the dead, and any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are promised an eternal life with him. There is no other way to heaven. You're bigoted, you're, you're you know, you, whatever, you go on. Don't let the world tell you theology so the reminder that mockers are going to come paul wrote very similarly in chapter 3 of second timothy verses 1 to 5 this but realize this that in the last days difficult times will come see this is why i like paul he's kind of like a cheery michael easley sermon (laughs) 
difficult days will come. Put a smile on your face. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful. Don't you like how he throws that in there? You disobey your parents. That's like being a murderer. Gee, you know. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Oh, my word, does that explain our culture? Does that explain our culture? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. The whole tension in the world of the world, you've heard me say this so many times, I think the greatest challenge of being a believer, an evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing, whatever adjective you want to saran wrap around this thing is, how are you in the world but not of the world? I, I don't know how to parse it for anybody else. I don't know how to parse it for me sometimes. I know this, I can't live in sin. And it's that knife edge we try to live on as close to sin as possible without sinning. It's nonsense. Get away from the border. Put a guardrail up. Well, that was called the law. It didn't work so well. Rather than believe and hope in Christ's return, men and women of hubris in Peter's time were saying there's no second coming. See, this is all a charade. Now, let's give a little benefit of the doubt to the audience. The apostles thought Christ was going to return in, his, in their time. They were looking for his return in their lifetime because everything Jesus said seemed to sound like it's coming up pretty quickly. Wait for me in Jerusalem, I'll return. And they're looking up to heaven. I love the angel kind of gives it me. It's, it's a lot of comedy in the Bible that we miss. You know, What are you looking at? That's how we say it. What are you looking up here for? Get to work. You're looking at your watch. No, it's not time for a break. He's not coming back. He told you to go to Jerusalem. He told you to take the gospel to all parts of the world. Get out there and do what he told you to do. Well, he might be coming back. Get busy. First century believers were looking for the return of Christ, and they were living in persecution. And in 70 AD, Titus, the Roman emperor, destroys Jerusalem and turns it upside down, just as the prophets foretold. And now the, the Jewish believers are scattered. I love the word. Diaspereo, spereo, spereo, spereo. Spereo in Greek means to sow seed. The believers were scattered after Stephen has been stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. Diaspereo. God used the, the martyrdom of Stephen to spread the church out of Jerusalem because they didn't obey him and do what he told them to do. Interesting how God has used persecution of faithful men and women forever to get them off their komosayama. That's what he does. Well, Peter mentions the promise of his coming just to give you a few New Testament reminders of this, that it was an important doctrine then and is today. John 14, chapter, one, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be with me also. If you've been to any funeral that's in mildly Christian, they'll use John 14, 1 to 8 almost every time. Christ is going away, I'm going to come back. The second coming was what Jesus spoke of. Acts 1, verse 11 
They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from us, from, uh, from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have seen him. Watch him go into heaven. Um, I, this is where I get Spielberg-esque in my theology. Sometimes when he does this stuff with, you know, CGI with skies and storms and thunderclouds and ominous, you know, that to me is the idea of the, the second coming, everybody's going to see it. You're not going to be wondering, is this the second coming? It's going to be as obvious as when you walk out and say the weather is changing. And in some spectacular way, God will make it available for the world to see. Well, the final part is, remember, God's word is eternal and unalterable. Verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, and those are underlined in my Bible, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Remember God's word. Remember this is God's word. Secondly, remember mockers are going to come. And finally, remember God's word is eternal and unalterable. Uh, it escapes their notice. It, it avoids the truth and enables us to focus on our lusts. Um, it's a pretty rich passage. It escapes notice because if we can ignore it, we can choose to live in sin. If we can ignore the truth of Christ's return, doesn't really matter, he's not coming back. Maybe it was a charade all along. I can go live as I please. Peter appeals to the beginning of creation and he does this thing we don't have time to look at in some depth, but God is the creator and water is the imagery. And in the beginning we have the water, up, uh, water above and below the earth and that's the imagery. And water is ironically what's going to destroy the earth. Next time, fire will destroy the earth. Reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment. God intervened in creation. He intervened by the flood, meaning he'll intervene again. So that's why the Old Testament prophets were important to that audience. Most of them did believe those stories. They're not skeptics like we are today. They believed in a literal flood. They believed in a literal creation. They didn't dispute it like people do today and God will come again intervening with fire. A um, couple of lessons. Number one, God's word serves as an ongoing reminder. And one of the reasons I'm going to you know, say it until I'm dead, get your nose in the book every day, not because you have to, because you can, not because you should, but because you have the freedom to, not because it's going to make you a better person, because it's going to help you grow in your knowledge of God and Christ and his word. Uh, it serves as an ongoing reminder. The older you get, some of you people have remarkable recall. Cindy and I, it's, it's cliche, it's almost stupid to talk about, but as you get older, you forget things. You forget names and places and where you put stuff. You know, it's just, it, it's just part of life. And uh, I think I told you before, a neurosurgeon friend of mine told me, Michael, as long as you know, like when you went from your office to the kitchen, and you, why did I come here? And you go back to your office and you remember, Right? Well, now I go to the kitchen, I don't remember. I go to mom's, I still don't remember. <laughs> and it got me kind of worried. And so he knows, as long as you're aware of it, you're okay. Ha, <laughs> ah, I'm great. My mind is sharp as a tack. I'm aware I, I'm aware I can't remember anything. That's a good thing. 
Because when you're not aware and when you're, and Cindy's telling you you don't know, that's when it's a problem. Makes sense. So be encouraged if you can't remember where you are. I need an ongoing reminder. I got to get up, put my nose in a little book, put my nose in the big book. You'll never be exempt from this. You get 24 hours in a day, just like me. You don't need more time. You just need to compartmentalize. I will never guilt or shame or should you or ought you. I will prod you and provoke you and encourage you and stir you and nudge you and point you and cajole you every other way I can. Get your nose in the book because this is the only mooring we've got to a culture that's gone completely, I'm not even talking about the culture, a Christian culture that's gone bonkers. They've gone bonkers. How I feel and all what the Old Testament, I mean, goodness sakes, teach the Bible, will you? What a novel idea. Get your nose in the Bible. What a novel idea. Learn how to pray. What a novel idea. I'm still learning how to pray. I still need props. I haven't got to figure it out. Secondly, people who are guided by the flesh are not going to be reasonable. Peter mentioned this, unreasoning animals. Don't expect people to think reasonably. That's, that's a fool's errand. This culture, <laughs> this culture is unreasonable. I was talking to a friend the other day. I, have a, I should probably write an article on it, but someone will write a book on it and make money, and it'll be my idea. I had that idea years ago. Uh, you know, tribes, the term tribes, Seth, Seth Grodin wrote the book on tribes, right? And so people have tribes. And social media has been a construct that has moved away from the, the three channels that most of us grew up with in UHF that no one ever watched except for PBS. You had three channels, legacy media. Now you've got how many? Innumerable. And now people are cutting the cord and cutting the cable and they're getting there. I don't, Cindy, I don't have direct dish anymore. We, we use different aggregates on our computer and snippets that we watch. We just, I got sick and tired of it. And so with the way we get information now comes from multiple sources that are what? Fake news, unverified, have to do mea culpas, so forth. You know, you know, this is the culture we live in. So I was talking to my friend. I said, you know, Christianity has been uh, affected by tribes. I am of MacArthur. I am of Piper. I am of uh, Keller. I am of Swindoll. I am of Jeremiah. I am of Andy Stanley, fill in the blank. I am of. So we've got these tribes. And what do we do? Gospel Coalition. We talk to each other. And we argue among each other until we get mad somebody leaves the group. The tribes have become compounds. That's my thesis. We built these big walls around the tribe. And we're smug. We're smug in our tribe. The, the danger of this is we're trying to think people are going to be reasonable. I'm a reasonable person. I'm, I'm glad to have an argument and a discussion and a debate with you. And we have different positions on gifts, different positions on end times, different positions on whatever. But if this person or I am unreasonable, there's no reasoning. When you have a two-year-old who is hungry and tired and throwing a temper tantrum, can you reason with that little boy or girl? How many times have you been in a grocery line and seen some poor mother with maybe she's got one or two kids in tow and one of them has just got the meltdown, lost it, going crazy? Have you seen a mother walk away from a shopping cart before? It's a delightful thing. 
I can't deal with this right now. I'm sorry. You're going to have to restock all that stuff. I got to get out of here because all these people hate my guts right now because my little angel is demonic right now. And I got to get out of this room because she or he is controlling the whole thing. And you, you smile go, can't you get that kid in control? You can't reason with an unreasonable person. They're out of control. They're hungry. They're tired. Whatever, lonely, whatever you can put in that whole expression. Um, people who are guided by their flesh will not be reasonable. Uh, a simple way of saying this, you cannot fact away a feeling. If a person feels strongly about something, no matter how many facts you give them or correct information, they'll say, well, I don't like your facts. This was a political spew just this week. I had to laugh. The person says, I'd reject your facts. <laughs> well, isn't that sweet? Earth is flat. Let's go back to that. Gravity doesn't affect you. Walk off that roof and see what happens. Reject the facts. I don't care. That's where we've gotten to. So these tribes have affected, why well, am I on this rabbit trail? Actually for a reason. <laughs> these tribes have become compounds and pretty soon we're putting roofs on them. And we're isolationists in our views. This is the only safeguard you've got to be reasonable. And when you get into your tribe and it becomes a compound, everybody else is wrong, which may be true, Unless it's God's word and God's spirit, you're on thin ice. You're on thin ice. Third and last, God's word holds the heavens and the earth together until such time as he, see, he sees fit. I love this. Sin and I talked this morning about how beautiful the morning was. It's cold, but the sun was out. What is it about the sun? I saw, I won't point them out, but I saw um, a woman put, a woman back there put a beautiful picture of her kids on their, on their land and all it said something like it's back and the sun was out and this little kid was running up the hill and the sun was shining. What is it about that it changes our whole mood? It changes our whole day. I mean, do you really want to live in Bend, Oregon? Where it rains 340 days a year, you know, it's, it's gray, you get three days of spring and it's over. Um, I look at creation in a different way. The older, I've always loved being outdoors, Colorado, Rockies, whatever, Yellowstone. I've always loved that. But when you get out from the maddening routine of eight to five or six to six, whatever you live, uh, and you look at creation and go, man, God's sustaining this thing. God is sustaining it. We can't predict the patterns. We can't get, we get better at it, but then he surprises us. We live in a fallen, broken, wonderful, messed up, ugly glorified, happy, crazy world. It's not going to get perfect. Can't, won't. So you work, you love, you laugh, you celebrate, you smile at the future because God holds it together until he sees fit. I don't think we'll be around for the fire. I hope not. That's why I'm a premillennial, pre-tribulation guy. I want to be out of here when it happens. Sorry. Um, you can stand back and watch it and tell me all about it. His word's true. It's unalterable. It can be trusted no matter what the world tells you. Don't let the world teach you theology.